You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the explicit purpose of John's Gospel, and it has therefore been the purpose of our study as we walk through this Gospel, namely that you would believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, God's only Son, God in human flesh, both fully God and fully man, and the only one able to save, and that by believing these things, you would have life in His name. That would be our our purpose. Along with that, we recognize that there are people who come every single week, members of this church, believers who may or may not yet be members of our church, who have professed this to be true. And it is the responsibility of believers to proclaim this message to everyone that we know, everyone that we meet, and even those we do not yet know, we proclaim this gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God, the only one able to save, having given His life for sinners on the cross in our place, being raised from the dead, repenting of our sins and believing in Him, trusting in Him for salvation, All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel. And it is important and essential even that you and I as believers proclaim this gospel. So if you are here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, my call to you from God's word on his authority is to go and proclaim the message you are about to hear and be encouraged by the gospel through which you've been saved. And if you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, the command of Scripture is repent and believe. Trust in Christ today and be saved. Well, the passage that we come to this morning in particular, John chapter 3, contains perhaps one of the most well-known and deeply loved Scriptures in all the Bible. And that is John chapter 3 and verse 16. Most of us, even those who have not yet believed its truth, can quote John 3.16 if for no other reason than a beloved athlete who wore it underneath his eyes for four years. We, we know what John 3.16 says. It's really the most Googled thing, I think, probably in the history uh, of Google because of it being written underneath Tim Tebow's eyes. And yet, I think we come to it with a disadvantage because we extract it from its context and we don't see everything that is there. And I... I really believe with all my heart that we are robbing it of its, of its power and in some ways maybe even robbing it of its clarity. What is really being said. And if we were to see in context what God is saying, it would absolutely shake everything that we are. And so this is, in its entirety, all of chapter 3, one of many, many sermons or conversations in the, the book of John that has been called a salvation discourse. And each one of these discourses begins with a problem or a particular event or a question or a sign, something that's been given that Jesus seeks to explain. And when he does, he gives some central aspect of the Christian faith or sometimes multiple aspects of the Christian faith, things about what it means to believe. So this is a conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus does just that. There are central aspects of salvation that are essential for us to understand. And if you're going to be saved, you must know and embrace these realities and the things that Jesus talks about must happen in our lives. So 
What is it that's said? Well, this conversation with Nicodemus can be divided into three different parts. There's three essential things that Jesus says to Nicodemus. And what we're going to do is take the first one today and, and then divide this conversation that really goes through verse 21 or so. And we're going to divide it over the course of the next three, uh, this, this morning and the next two weeks to come. And so you'll want to be here to hear each and every one of the things that Jesus says about salvation. So, I want to invite you to stand with me if you found your place in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read just the first eight verses this morning. John chapter 3 and verse 1, the Bible says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is truly with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, I pray this morning that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts to see what is perhaps a dangerously familiar passage. In all of our Christian lingo, God, I fear that we have perhaps lost the fullness of what is being said in John chapter 3. And so I pray this morning that you would remove the blinders, that you would soften hearts that have been calloused by familiarity, and that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. That your spirit would convict us of sin, of unbelief, of what it truly means to be saved. I pray that if there is someone in this room who has never trusted in Jesus before, as your word defines it, never followed after Christ, never become a Christian, never truly been saved, I pray that they today would be convicted of their sins and compelled by the love of Christ to come and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. As for believers in this room, God, we pray together that you would stir our hearts by the amazing grace by which we've been saved. That you would help us with deepened worship as we grow in our understanding of what all you have done in this gospel. And that at the end of the day, all that happens here in this place would bring glory and honor to your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Nicodemus was a pretty important guy. Um, In that day, you might say he was one of the most important one of the greatest leaders in the community. The text says in verse 1 that he was a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. And in in that day, that meant he was pretty important. But not just any community leader. The description here in the passage would seem to indicate that he was a part of the group of men that led called the Sanhedrin. Made up of all these Pharisees and Sadducees, the ones who basically were the Supreme Court of the Jewish culture. They were responsible for making all of the, yes, legal decisions for the, the body. Because remember, this was the people of God. 
And all of their decisions were religious. They were a theocracy, so to speak. And so they followed the Lord, at least on the surface. That fact is confirmed, at least him being a part of these 70 men, that fact is confirmed as we go to chapter 7 and verse 45. We're not going to go there this morning, but you might read it later on your own time. A moment when the officers of the court were trying to arrest Jesus for all that he was doing. And they come to the temple court, to the Sanhedrin, and Nicodemus is one of them that speaks up out among these men. Clearly, he was one of the seventy. But this text is before that moment, before that event there in the temple court. And what seems to be the case here is that Nicodemus has come to Jesus not completely of his own doing. It's almost as if the Sanhedrin had been uh, been meeting and talking about who this Jesus was and had been mounting kind of a plan to go after Jesus and figure this whole thing out because undoubtedly at this point, news of his ministry was growing. So Nicodemus will do it. He's kind of like the Mikey, right? Mikey will eat it. Uh, This is Nicodemus. He'll go. So Nicodemus leaves the group and he goes to Jesus. Maybe the same day, maybe the next day. Who knows how long after this supposed meeting, but he goes to speak to Jesus and he says in verse two, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he says we he's not speaking just for himself. He's speaking for the whole group of them and he's coming out of intrigue. But in in a sense, he's putting Jesus on trial. He drew the short straw, so he had to go ask Jesus. Now, verse 2 says that Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night. It's an interesting little detail, and we've made much of this little detail throughout the years. A lot has been made about maybe Nicodemus going to Jesus at night because it's just a historical detail. Maybe John's just kind of giving us a, a time and date stamp, so to speak, on when this took place. Others have speculated that there was a group of rabbis that studied long into the night hours and they would have this discussion. And so maybe they were at their midnight kind of discussion and they just had to go ask Jesus right now. Or perhaps some have even suggested that Nicodemus went to Jesus at night because he feared what it would look like if he was seen with this rabbi from Galilee, the one who's doing all these weird things, you know, and teaching all these strange ideas and What would it look like if I was with him? Maybe I would be accused of being a follower. So he goes in the cloak of night. All of those things are speculative and perhaps maybe some of them have some merit. But if you simply read the text, which, by the way, I would encourage you that that's how you would interpret the Bible, that you just come to the text at face value for what it says and let God fill in the gaps. If you simply Read it for what it says. It actually kind of fits with the context that he would come at night, doesn't it? First off, John uses this idea of night or darkness, not in real physical terms, but in spiritual terms. Think about it. We've already seen it in John chapter one, when there was darkness in the world and Jesus came in and his life was the light of men. We've already seen this kind of darkness light theme, but John chapter 9 and verse 4, you might write these down and look later, but John chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 10, verse 22 through 23, 11 and verse 10, 13 and verse 30. If you didn't get all that, ask me later. But all of these places, night is used metaphorically, believing in Jesus while it is yet day, right? Because the night's coming. The stage is set at the very beginning of the gospel and throughout the gospel to show this spiritual darkness that is in the world. And Nicodemus happens to come at night. And if that's not convincing enough for us, really just reading before we ever get here at the end of chapter two and verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name When they saw the signs he was doing, it would seem like, remember that they believe. And then verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knows what is in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. In other words, John is saying 
Nicodemus is the illustration of what I just said. There is a belief that looks real on the surface, but it is only surface level. It's not gone beyond skin, skin deep. Nicodemus was illustrating the difference in these kinds of beliefs. He had all the markings of a good, moral, religious, upstanding man, didn't he? And yet, his belief was not real. Inwardly, he was in darkness. The night that Nicodemus came to Jesus was nowhere near as dark as the spiritual darkness of his own heart. Nicodemus' heart is really a picture of not just a guy 2,000 years ago, but it's the heart of so many, and many in the church today, who on the outside have the image, the, the, the shell of religious expression, but on the inside, there's really spiritual darkness they practice religious expression, but they remain without any real spiritual experience. And if that's true, what we want to do in this passage is get to the heart of why that's true. Because if I, if I hear that, and, and that's the truth about my life, I want to know how to get out of that. I, I want to know the remedy, and what led me here, and how do I know God, and how do I find this, this kingdom that Jesus is speaking of here in the passage. Well, part of the reason why it was true for Nicodemus is the fact that he had not yet come to believe in who Jesus was. Remember how important it is that we trust Jesus and in that the identity of who Jesus is, right? These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you might have life in His name. We must believe in the biblical Jesus who He declares Himself to be. You can't fashion a Jesus of your own making, believe in that Jesus, and claim to be saved. You must believe in who Jesus really is, and He declares Himself to be in His Word. And Nicodemus clearly didn't. How do we know that? Well, he begins by, nicking, uh, by, by addressing... Uh, Nicodemus begins by addressing Jesus in a really polite way. Nonetheless, it's the wrong way. is Rabbi. And in so doing, he's... Acknowledging Jesus is a good teacher, right? And even a respected teacher. The problem is, he's actually acknowledging Jesus as his equal. Remember, they were a group of rabbis. So he says, hey, fellow teacher. My boys sent me to ask you <laughs> uh, what exactly it is that you're teaching. Because I don't know that it squares with what we're teaching. And we need to make sure, you know, you might be from a little different school of thought than we are. And we gotta, we got to square this thing together. What is this going to look like? And how do we do this kind of thing? They're not antagonistic against him yet, although that's coming. They're at least curious, but certainly not believing. And he addresses him as his equal. He even says that we know that you're a teacher come from God. He even puts that stamp, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right? He believes in the moment that God is with Jesus. Here's the problem. He doesn't believe in the moment that God is with him, Nicodemus. You see, Jesus is not the person whom God is with. Jesus is God with us, right? He doesn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. So Nicodemus says, we know, but his we know is false. <laughs> we know that you are one sent from God. And yet, in all of his knowing, all the things that he knew about Jesus in the moment, he was one who sat in utter spiritual darkness because he didn't believe in Jesus as God in human flesh, the only way to know God, the Messiah, that's what he Missed. He didn't know who Jesus was. But there's a second reason. And that reason gets to the heart of what Jesus is trying to show us, saying to us today, and what, what it means to be saved. And this is where it's such a profound statement, and yet there is so much familiarity that perhaps we miss it. The question from Nicodemus is implied. Nicodemus doesn't ask the question, but it would seem like Jesus knows the question that it's on his mind. Because Jesus wants to know how he's doing all the things that he's doing. Or rather, Nicodemus wants to know how Jesus is doing all the things that he's doing, basically. 
And, and he's a sin, in a sense asking, what is it that you believe about God and his kingdom and his will and all these things that we're supposed to do? Because when Jesus responds, he, though Nicodemus is so focused on the here and the now and everything that God is about right here, Jesus raises his sights and says, truly, I say to you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's completely a foreign concept to Nicodemus for one reason, because the kingdom is something that all of the Jews were believing they were going to inherit because they were the people of God. To think there was something else that separated them out, some of them going to inherit the kingdom, to know the kingdom, to enter the kingdom, which, by the way, is what he means. Verse five, it's not just seeing the kingdom. Verse five says, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. That's the idea That's what Jesus means. So you're saying, Jesus, there's a possibility I might not make it. This is a novel concept. The same time, Nicodemus is assuming human ability is what's going to get him there. We know that you're a teacher come from God. Remember, he's a rabbi. He's from God. He's not God in Nicodemus' mind. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. In other words, we need to know how you've been licensed. We need this same power. There's something in us that's going to solve this problem. Nicodemus completely confused and Jesus sees right past the outside shell and he deals with the greater ultimate issue. The one of the kingdom at large. Eternal question. Nicodemus becomes really surprised by Jesus' words because he says you must be born again. The first word seems strange enough, right? Nicodemus asked the question, how can a man be born when he is old? I'm already born, Jesus. This doesn't make much sense in my head. How does that work? The second question is really where he stumbled, though. Born again. He said, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Like, that's crazy. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, the word born again, the word again could mean again as in a second time, which is where Nicodemus finds his confusion. But the word also means from above. Not just again in the sense in a second time, but again in an entirely different way. This was the concept of the word. And from above, from God. Not again in the same way, but in a totally different way from God. And this is not altogether different from what John has already said in chapter 1. He says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Listen to this. This is not a new concept in in John's Gospel. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become, here it is, children of God who were born, not born of blood, not born of the will, not born of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but born of God. Those who are born of God become children of God. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is this. In order to be saved, you must be born of God. You must be born of God. Which, by the way, is born in a way that has nothing to do with human ability. It is not not by you being a Pharisee. It's not by you being a good moral person. It's not even you being a rabbi. It's not even, by the way, Nicodemus, me being a rabbi in your eyes. God has to do a transformative, sovereign work in your heart whereby you who were dead in your trespasses and sins become alive in Christ. And only God can do that. You must be born from above. There is a need in our lives as humans not to be turning over a new leaf, not to somehow quit all the things we used to do that were bad, not to start going to church. The need in our life is not even really to become a new person. 
The need in our life is to be raised to spiritual life, to actually be spiritually born. We were naturally born, yes. Each and every one of us, if you're breathing in this room, you were born. Somewhere, somehow, you know the story, but we were born, right? But not everyone, in fact, no one by nature, is born spiritually. It is the work of God, and it must happen in order for someone to. To be saved. If you read chapter 3, all of the emphasis is on the work of God in the text. Verse 8, the work of the Spirit to bring us to new life, to cause us to be born again, born by Spirit and water. Verse 14, the work of the Son. Even into verse 16, what God has done in sending the Son. Verse 16 and 17, the work of God Himself to both justify us and to make the way possible. All of these things, the act of God, and all of this in the conversation with Nicodemus. The only thing that we are commanded to do, the only thing that is required in our hearts, is that we by faith believe the gospel. God causes new birth. And it's a common theme in John. That we become children of God. In fact, John was so impressed, so gripped by this reality. When he composes a letter, 1 John, to the church, he, con- he constantly calls them the children of God. Little children. Anyone who's been, who loves God has been born of God. What it means to be born again has gripped John's heart. So hear this so clearly. You do not get saved by religious expression. You get saved by new birth. The word we use for this in theology is the word regeneration. It's where the Spirit of God raises one who is dead in their trespasses and sins to life. We're made new in a sense as we're brought to new spiritual life. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of the old things having passed away and all things becoming new. And why Ephesians talks about being spiritually dead and being made spiritually alive. And the only way that happens is by the mercy of God. And this is the message that Nicodemus needed to hear. And in a world around us where spiritual pursuits are purely defined by self-expression, emotional experience, ability to self-improve, religious quest. In that kind of a world, we need to hear again and again and again that salvation is the work of God. You must be born of God. I think like Nicodemus, we often assume that our upbringing is what's going to get us into heaven. And just as shockingly, it's not true. No amount of heritage or religious experience or tradition will get you to heaven. And there's a line that divides those who are truly saved from those who are not. And the difference between those who are truly saved and those who are not are those who have been born again by the Spirit of the living God. Those who claim the name of Jesus Christ have been born again. And there are too many who claim the name of Jesus and they've never been changed. Their lives are still the same. And it's because they have not been Regenerated. Nicodemus wrongly assumed that it had something to do with human ability and it has nothing to do with human ability at all. There are many in the church whose salvation story, if they were asked, is all about what they did and what they have done since. All of the stories, all of the accomplishment, but at the end of the day, our story of salvation is not at all about us, but about what Jesus did. It's about what God does in the human heart. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And even even this irony of Nicodemus coming and calling Jesus rabbi points to it. 
He knew the law. He knew everything he was supposed to do. And yet he had no idea what it was really pointing to. More importantly, who it was pointing to. And that is Jesus. So if you've never been born again, the command of Scripture is you must be. You must be. Or you cannot be saved. And Nicodemus, in this confusion... Jesus has the need to kind of explain to him a little bit further what it means to be born again. Because you might be saying this morning, if that's true, I can't do anything about where I'm at in my life. And that would be a fantastic starting point for you to come to that realization. Because the truth of the matter is, no, we can't. But God has done. So what does it look like in a person's life if they've truly been born again? Again, how do we know this? We know three things from what Jesus says to Nicodemus here. Number one, those who are born of God personally confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. Those who are born of God personally confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. So verses 5 through 8 is where he begins to explain what he means to Nicodemus. Here's what he says. Verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's kind of weird, right? Born of the Spirit, we kind of got that far so far. We, we understand that it's the act of God, the Holy Spirit being the third member of the Trinity, one with God the Father and God the Son, and of course, we need to be born of God, the Spirit of God doing something in our heart. No one can even call Jesus Lord unless the Spirit causes it in their life. This is what we're told in Acts. Yet, what is this water thing? Well, Jesus identified this birth from above as both water and Spirit. He's not saying first the water, then the Spirit. He's not saying first the Spirit, then the water. He's putting these, things to, these two things together as Different acts that are synonymous that both must happen. A person has to be born of spirit and of water. The linking of water and spirit is not new. This is something Nicodemus really should have understood, if nothing else, than from the Old Testament, knowing his Bible. The linking together of, one, of water and spirit, the idea of life, for people like the Jews, they would have understood water as life source and God providing that as a, as a salvation means in their history, only pointing them to His care for them, His faithfulness down through the years. So, so to put those two things together is not crazy for Nicodemus. What is Jesus talking about with this water? Again, we need only look to look to the plain reading of the text. Some have tried to bring in the water as an idea from the Old Testament I think that has merit, but just read this. The very next, uh, the very next text after the conversation with Nicodemus is what? Verse 22. After Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing. It's right in the context. It's pointing to the picture of baptism. Now, on the other side of this coin, some have gone to this verse and they've said, verse five, if you've got to be born of water and of spirit, well, you cannot be saved without being baptized. You must be dunked in the water. You must be baptized. And that's when you become a Christian. When the spirit of God causes you to be born again, you're baptized in the water. The baptism is what saves you. That's not at all what Jesus is teaching Remember that John's baptism we're about to be talking about, by the way, Jesus not having a concept yet of this, at least in his teaching, he doesn't understand baptism to be in a pool in front of a church. He understands baptism to be what John is doing. And John came preaching a baptism of what? Repentance. This is the call. It's to turn from a life without God and to confess a life with God, His coming Son, Jesus. 
Even if you were to fast forward that into the New Testament church, what you would see is the New Testament. In the New Testament, there wasn't walking an aisle to make a profession of faith. The profession of faith in the New Testament was what? Baptism. It was professing Christ and being baptized as an expression of that profession. We do it a little differently today, but that's the picture. What Jesus is saying is unless the Spirit does His work to cause you to be born again so that the mouth does its work to confess Jesus as Lord, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. When a person becomes born again, they confess Jesus as Lord. That's why Peter in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 could say, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Because it was a synonymous act. The confession of Jesus. So those who are born of God personally confess Jesus as Savior and Lord. And here is the tragedy. The tragic irony is there are many in the Christian church, so-called Christian church in America, that profess Jesus Christ with their lips, but Jesus is not Lord in their life. That is not the way the Bible describes being born of the Spirit and of water. To profess Jesus is to say, Jesus, I'm now surrendering my life to you. When, the New, when in the New Testament, people professed Jesus as Lord, they left everything that they had and they followed Jesus. They left their lives, their lives of sin and they followed Jesus. They left their lives of rebellion and they followed Jesus. He was Lord and He was Savior. If this one really had been raised from the dead, then He was worthy of being King of kings and Lord of lords in my life. So if you've been born again, this is what it looks like. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Last week we had the joy of baptizing our second daughter. Um, Abby's trusted Jesus as Savior and been baptized. Many of you have had the joy of watching your children being baptized. And what Avery did last week and what you, Christian, did when you were baptized is you profess Jesus Christ as Lord publicly. That is a miracle of God. It's a miracle of God because that can only happen when the Spirit of God raises a dead man to life. Second thing that we know about those who've been born again Second thing is that those who are born of God are regenerated by divine power. Those who are born of God are regenerated by divine power. So when Nicodemus comes here in verse 6 and he says, that which is born of, rather Jesus says to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit, he's making a distinction. There are things that the flesh can do, and there are things that the Spirit can do, namely the Holy Spirit. So, in Scripture, there's a contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. One of those contrasts is those things that are sinful and those things that are righteous. The, the will of man and the will of God, right? The things that honor, that honor God, the things that don't honor God, right? The distinction between the flesh and the Spirit. That's not the distinction quite Jesus is making here. What Jesus is saying, you being born in the flesh, you can only do what the flesh is capable of. And the fallen man is incapable of trusting in Jesus. The flesh, human frailty, weakness, finiteness, that's the picture. He says... Flesh will do only fleshly things. The Spirit will do spiritual things. And so it must happen by God's Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. It's a a place of entrapment. The sinners were enslaved to our sin. We want only to sin and chase after unrighteousness. 
Something has to happen in our life in order for us to pursue the will of God in our life. And what happens when a person is changed from darkness into light, from sin to obedience, whenever we want to not follow our own life and our own passions and our own pursuits, and we want to chase after the kingdom and God, and we love Him and His Word and His will in our lives, the reason that's happened is because God, in His miracle-working power, has wrought new life in an unbelieving heart. He's ultimately led a person to trust in Him by faith and they've been forever changed. Because the flesh is itself unable. It's frail. It's weak. We cannot attain eternal life on our own. The Spirit must empower it. In the Old Testament, the hope of the final days was tied to the coming of the Spirit. You might remember passages like Joel chapter 2 when God's Spirit would be poured out on all men. There's an expectation of Israel that the coming of this Messiah would embody the presence of the Spirit. It would be full and powerful and pervasive and God would enact His will and everything would be made right. And so it should be no surprise to find that Birth by water and spirit is linked to this kingdom idea in John's gospel. When Jesus preaches the kingdom, it's one of only two places he does this. We see the power of the kingdom of God at work when the spirit is working among the hearts of people. You remember Acts chapter 2 when the spirit comes? He hovers over the people. He comes on them like tongues of fire. They begin to speak in various languages. People hear in their own native language and they are saved. And there is a display of the power of God's Spirit, perhaps like never before. And yet we are seeing expressions of that every single day when unbeliever after unbeliever after unbeliever professes faith in Jesus Christ. This is divine power. Some might say that miracles today have ceased and God's not raising the dead to life and healing the blind and all of these other things, but He is doing a far more glorious miracle in the lives of sinners when He raises the spiritually dead to life. And that can't happen apart from God. It's the power of God to change any life. And we need His help. We need His rescue. There's one final thing that we see here in the passage that is true of those who are born of God. And to this point, you might be saying, wow, I, I, God has done this. I, I, don't e- I don't even understand how this is possible. I, I don't know about you, but I, I've, as a Christian, there's been moments where God has done some things in my life even in saving me and in changing me. We were talking about this morning in Connect Group how God just keeps revealing ways in which I'm fallen and need to be changed into His image every single day. This is happening and sometimes I just sit back and go, I don't even know how that happened. It's because in verse or number 3, verse 7 and 8, those who are born of God are evidence of a profound mystery. Evidence of a profound mystery. Jesus said, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. (laughs) Nicodemus is back on his heels trying to figure out what's going on here. And Jesus says, well, you know, the wind, it blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Any of you ever seen one of those maps, maybe on the Weather Channel, where they're showing all the wind direction and how it's moving in different troughs at different levels and all kinds of different things? You ever tried to go outside and capture the wind? Measure the wind, define the wind, explain the wind? Make one of those maps on your own. And we all know how often the weatherman is right. And what Jesus is saying is the things that God is doing in your life You can't explain them. You don't know where it's going, ultimately where it's been, where it came from. We're blown around the Spirit of the living God. And He knows exactly what He's doing. Everyone who's born of the Spirit is led by the Spirit. That's what Romans 8 says. It is a mystery what God does in our life. 
In the ancient world, it was even worse. They didn't have the weather channel. All they could do is feel it, experience it, hear it. And these are the characteristics that Jesus says are of the believer. First century outside observers probably would have looked at the believer and gone, I don't even understand what's going on in their life. Why would they do something so crazy? People leaving their homes and their families and trusting in Jesus. There are people, by the way, all across the world right now, leaving the, the Islam faith. It, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that at the cost of your life? People selling their homes and picking far less profitable careers. People turning their backs on things that they once loved and enjoyed to pursue something entirely different doesn't make any sense. Why would you? Why would you give all of your life for something so crazy that you can't touch or feel? It's because the sovereign work of the Spirit has changed your heart. It's a divine mystery. Even as, we, even as we think about and study in God's Word all that God has done in salvation, I'm going to be honest, there are times where we look in God's Word and we go, that doesn't seem to add up to me. I don't see how that works. It seems to be teaching this over here and that over there. And, and how, do I, how do I square those two things together? And although there is no contradiction, there are certainly tensions that are difficult for, our, for us to understand. But what it should do in the life of the believer Believer, if you're here this morning having trusted in Jesus, you've been born again, you ought to be incredibly, overwhelmingly worshipful over what God has done for you. It's changed you. And it is a profound mystery that you cannot possibly explain. But you know the reason. You know the reason. And it is because of what Jesus did on the cross. And what He's doing by His Spirit. And so you might come to this passage and you might think, what about me, pastor? I don't know Jesus. I'm just waiting on God to change me. There's hope. Because even the one who didn't understand seems to come around. I want you to turn to chapter 19 with me and we're going to close right here. Chapter 19 and verse 38. Same Nicodemus, chapter 3. The same Nicodemus, chapter 7, who's now leading the pack and kind of maybe standing up for Jesus in chapter 7, if you read that. Notice what he's doing in verse 38 of chapter 19. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. By the way, there's the secret in fear. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. And look at there in verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And this was after Jesus was crucified and just before he would be raised to life. Now, I don't know where Nicodemus' heart was. But this seems to be a different Nicodemus. Anyone who comes and bows the knee to Jesus in worship. God's doing something. You might be here this morning and God is doing something in your heart. Today, it is huge. It is the most important thing you will ever do. That today you simply surrender in faith, repentance, and believe. And God will raise you to spiritual life and change you. Completely new in Christ today if you'll believe the gospel. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, we want to call you to do that just now in these moments. As you're there in the quietness of your seat, Dylan, worship team's going to come. They're going to play, lead us in singing. That God's doing a work in your heart. You know what it is. You hear His voice. He's speaking to you. Today you need to respond.
By His Spirit, He's calling you to salvation. Right where you are, wherever you are, you need to trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Believe that Jesus Christ died for you in your place. The death that you deserved. And that today, faith in Him alone will save you. A sinner crying out for mercy from a holy God. But gracious God who would give His only Son so that you might have eternal life. Today, if you believe that, trust in Jesus, you'll be saved. Then you've got to confess it with your mouth. It's to confess Jesus before men, to make a personal and public decision to follow Christ. And so in just a few moments when we stand, I want to encourage you right where you're standing. Come out of the place where you are. Come down to this altar. Say to me, Pastor, today I've trusted in Jesus today. I want to trust in Jesus. Will you help me? I'll help you today. Go to Jesus. Jesus will save you. We'll walk with you as you follow Christ, as we follow Christ together and grow in Him as He changes us every day. Others of you in this room, you've been encouraged today by what Christ has done in your salvation. You simply need to worship. Would you sing? Would you pray? Would you spend this time with the Lord? Maybe there's other needs in your life and you need to come to this altar. Bring somebody else with you. Pray with them. Ask them to pray with you. Whatever the need is in this room, today is the day and now is the time to respond. And so when I pray, you begin to come. Lord Jesus, we ask you to have your way in our hearts and in this place. Lord, we ask that you would be glorified in every decision that's made, that you would renew our faith, and that you would help us to follow you with all of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ. Amen.